Today on IFS Talks, we have the pleasure of meeting with Sue Richmond. Sue Richmond is level three IFS trained. She's a certified IFS therapist and an IFS assistant trainer. Sue came to the internal family systems world around 2001 as a result of her going back into therapy at a time where she was feeling disconnected and experiencing existential crisis. Sue currently has an individual psychotherapy practice, an IFS consultation practice, and she's expanded the use of the model by bringing IFS-informed practice into her work with psychotherapy groups. Now, Sue is working on a book about bringing IFS-informed practice to groups, and she'll be presenting a module about her work with groups to the 2021 IFS Continuity Program Series. Sue currently lives in central Connecticut with her wife and dog, Milo Thomas. Sue, thank you so much for joining us and being willing to speak with us here today. Oh, it's my pleasure, Tisha. Thank you. So thanks much, Sue, for joining us. What parts come up for you today during your bio? Huh, interesting. Um, that that uh, it's, been a, it's been a journey since... I entered my therapist's office in 2001 and finally got my training in 2010. I guess the parts that come up are the parts who waited so long to get trained, the parts of me who think back to that time when I was really having a bit of a dark night of the soul, personally and professionally, um, just just reminding me of those times. and where I am now in relationship to where I was then. Can you tell us a little bit more about your journey as a psychotherapist? Oh, sure. Well, you know, I, it's funny because I have an undergraduate degree in English. And, you know, the joke is, what do you do when you have an undergraduate degree in English? And the, the first thought, of course, was to teach. Um, I had a a hot moment of thinking, oh, perhaps I'll think about law. Um, and I basically kind of bounced around from job to job. I mean, my first job out of college was selling cars. Oh, I just, yeah, I didn't know what to do with myself. And so I, I did what all folks with undergraduate degrees that they, in liberal arts, that they're not sure what to do. And I worked in restaurants for many, many years on and off for 20 years. And which I think was the, probably my first job as a therapist. But my, my, my journey to becoming a therapist came really out of years and years of volunteering. I started volunteering when I was 14, and I did that consistently through college and various forms till I was about 28 and really started to buckle down in life a little bit. And... I think when I, I was the, the two most influential experiences for me in volunteer work was um, when I was a, a volunteer uh, sitter at hospice where I would sit with folks who were actively dying and um, I just couldn't do the hands-on stuff. I, I just couldn't do it, but I could sit with somebody while they were dying and hold their hand um, and then I, uh, because of my well-established restaurant skills and a family uh, heirloom of being able to be a really good cook, I 
also was a cook for AIDS Project New Haven. And um, we had a Wheels on Meals program. And so I would volunteer my time going into a house with an undisclosed location because at that time, for folks to know the location of that was very dangerous. They would often be targeted. And so I would go in the little basement and I would put, you know, I remember making a, a, a lovely cod with a Berblanc lemon sauce and sending it out to folks in the greater New Haven area who had AIDS and were homebound. And, and I got to thinking, I need to get paid for this work I'm doing. And so I thought, let me go to graduate school and become a social worker. That felt right, you know, as opposed to any other discipline. Um, Social work called me because of working with marginalized and disenfranchised folks. And I wanted to be a hospice volunteer. I had absolutely no interest in being a therapist at all. Mm. None. And then, to my heartbreak, uh, when I was a second year MSW student, my faculty advisor approached me and said, you need to figure out a field placement. And I said, well, I want to go to hospice. And she said, well, actually, this was my first year field placement. And she said, hospice doesn't take first year field pl- placement students. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was brokenhearted. And so um, I ended up having her tell me, you're going to go on an interview with the VA. And I thought the VA. And at the time I was, I was in the Naval Reserves, the U S Naval Reserves. And I thought, Oh, do I really want to work with these folks? And my dad had worked at that VA for many years and it didn't have the fondest of memories for me, but let alone it was in the psychiatric emergency room. I thought, Oh my God. God, what am I getting myself into? But I agreed to the interview. Mm-hmm. My, my compliant parts agreed. So I went, and to my joy, I met the woman who would be my greatest social work mentor. Oh. And it was accidental that in doing the work, um, I fell in love with psychiatry. Wow. And so I began a 16-year journey of being a crisis clinician, uh, medical consult liaison as a crisis clinician in hospitals, which would bring me up to the ICU and medical floors after folks had some kind of a psychiatric crisis that landed them in the ICU, whether it was um, an overdose, whether it was a suicide attempt. And I would sit with them and I would interview them uh, when they were able and just really help them figure out what next steps happened. And then I worked uh, inpatient. I did some time as an intern and in, inpatient at the VA. And then I went on to work at uh, another hospital for my second year in the IOP. And they hired me and I became a, a clinician and then I got licensed. And then ultimately I became the program manager of three day treatment programs. And I was simultaneously the hospital psych social work supervisor. So I had a big job there. And um, it was during that time that I found IFS and I learned how to be a therapist and my group work skills 
were really coming into play then. So, um, yeah, so that was my journey to becoming a therapist. I learned to be an individual therapist along the way and I never looked back and it's been a great journey. I mean, at one point I thought about, um, going to divinity school, um, and that didn't work out. And my calling has really been kind of, uh, always service service of some sort was always big in my family whether it was military service or volunteering and i just decided it was time to get paid for it so <laughs> it worked out and i've never looked back never regretted a day of it so you mentioned in in your initial reflection of your bio that you had a, a dark night of the soul experience, and I'm curious how the internal family systems work played into that and how you transitioned through that or moved through it. Yeah, sure. Um, it was once I got licensed as a social worker and um, I started feeling, though I loved, I loved behavioral health, um, psychiatry, the medical model of it, was really failing our, our patients. And I was feeling really demoralized with the work because I had worked so hard to get my master's degree. And I thought, oh my God, did I, was it for this? And there has to be something else. And, you know, um, I, I felt pretty depressed and I contacted a therapist with whom I had done some previous couples work with an ex and um, I said, hey, you got room in the inn? And would you see me even though you saw us? And she said she did. She would. So I went to that first appointment and I sat down and she said, hey, just so you know, um, I got trained in this thing called IFS and I'm using it exclusively in my practice and I hope that's okay with you. And I didn't know what I didn't know. And I agreed because you know, I felt connected to her and, um, I woke up and I always say, I, I felt like she saved my life. Hmm. And then what IFS did was help me to connect with parts of me that needed me in a way that they had never had needs met before. And so I began to incorporate some of that into my hospital work. Um, I knew enough to be dangerous as a client. So I figured, try it out there. And then the other piece of that is that along the way, I met my then partner, now wife. And when I realized that my parts didn't need her to redeem me anymore, mm. they got me. I actually had a choice of, do I want to stay with this person? <laughs> Well, that was almost 19 years ago, so we know the answer there. Yeah. So that's kind of the, the journey of that. And it was, a, it was a hard journey those first couple of years. And so, Sue, why does group psychotherapy can be a powerful tool for healing? Oh, my goodness. For me in IFS with groups, it's all about the witnessing. Yeah. And um, 
Unburdening can happen spontaneously, but for me, it's about public witnessing because what I've learned anecdotally as a therapist is that, um, and even in my own work, is that I am enough, and yet having a therapist witness me and witness parts of me that hold deep trauma um, is even more healing. And so I thought, well, you know, I think of I think of the idea of witnessing in like um, church or synagogue or temple or when someone is able to share a secret and not be shamed or judged or criticized, you know, uh, which is essentially a burden, right? You're loved up in a way that is very powerful. And so I thought, well, what if we did this in group? What if we started having people you know, first learn that they are not their diagnosis, that they, they are a human being with a core, with a resource in them. And that, you know, they have these parts that they're not bipolar. Mm. They have a part that gets manic. They have a part that gets depressed. And what if we could help with that? And that was the beginning. And then to have that witnessed more and more externally, where other people can then speak for their parts that have Similar experiences. Is it important to have people witness uh, one another's parts in these groups, or is it essential that uh, the unburdening process and the, the therapy process is, is witnessed? It's more important that their parts are witnessed. Yeah, because it lends itself to conversation within and among group, and that leads to connection. When somebody shares that they have a part that hijacks them, that takes them out with depression and suicidality or anxiety, and they've been sitting alone with this, and they hear somebody else say, well, I have a part that has that same experience. Mm -hmm. there's, a, there's this awakening that happens with people and this, this relaxation in their body where they know they're not alone. They know that there are people like them that, that have this shared sense. And, and what IFS does is it creates a shared language, right? So we can speak for, not from. Mm -hmm. And so they learn that. And, and it not only allows them to connect with each other, but it allows them to unblend from that part a little bit more. The unburdening, if it happens, it happens because parts get updated by being witnessed by other people. So how should we use IFS model in a group setting? Are there any basic tips that you want to share? Basic tips um, would be that first and foremost, this, the, the therapist needs to really, really be unblended. Oh, yeah. We really need to have a critical mass of self on board, whatever that is. I, I, I tell my folks that I work in my consultation practice with that, you know, there are eight C's just because we're therapists. Compassion doesn't have to be our go-to. <laughs> it can be, it can be connectedness. It can be confidence. It can be courage. It doesn't matter, but drop in a little bit deeper to whatever it is because you need to be the one to start the self energy and hold that container. Mm -hmm. Because when we can do that, everybody can then feel that from us, feel safe. And then they can drop into more of their own self. 
And then the magic ingredient there is that when they have that, then the group develops its own critical mass of self. And that's where that that's what I call the special sauce in the group is that critical mass of self that happens in the group. So I think the big tip is it starts with the therapist and it starts with um, really having enough awareness and knowledge of the model to be able to speak the language, demonstrate it, help folks use the language, help folks unblend and not be shaming. And that, you know, any part that shows up in the group can be welcomed in a way um, by having a different kind of conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that's kind of the reader's digest. I fit, My hope is that the continuity program will unpack it with a lot more detail. That is coming now, right? Yeah, that's going to start in September. Beautiful. Is there still room in the continuity program? Yes, my understanding is that it will open again um, in the foreseeable future, probably, I don't know if it's August or, sep- or early September, that they'll allow opening again for folks to sign up for um, you know, my module and then Chris Burris, who does the winter end of 2021. So pretty sure, yeah. Are there particular themes or titles that you like to run your groups under, like a like therapy group for depression or therapy group for you know anxious parts or for traumas? Is there something that really speaks to you? Well, the short answer is yes. The longer answer is it depends on a work agency or you're in private practice and you can call it whatever you want. In, in agency work, what I learned along the way was to pound a square peg into a round hole. I learned to take IFS language and make it into kind of CBT language so it was palatable um, for agency documentation and then, you know, the summaries of what my groups were focused on. So at first, you know, I had working to expand one's self-leadership and, you know, that didn't go over very well. So I then kind of re, <laughs> re, re, I mean, believe me, I was, I was preaching the good word of IFS from day one and they let me do whatever I wanted to do, which was great. But uh, at the same time, I knew I had to play by some roles that would be amenable to insurance companies for reimbursement. So eventually I created groups that were, you know, um, focused groups on, People in life transition, um, whatever that could mean. People working with um, aspects of themselves that get depressed. Um, People working with aspects of themselves that become very anxious. Um, So I would language it that way. Yeah. Um, I think the big thing for me is that there has to be an evaluation in the in, in the recruitment process for group membership, where I have to assess what internal and external constraints there are so that I can um, be mindful of the goodness of fit yeah. for group membership to be able to get the most self-energy out of the group, if that makes sense. So, you know, I, I when I was at a hospital-based outpatient clinic, um, I had a group for folks 
who really had lim had lots of uh, internal and external constraints where they had diagnoses of schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. And um, it was a very different way of working with their parts. They had to be well enough to be able to handle the rigors of being in a group in a process group at that versus what, you know, we all call in the therapy world, the walking wounded who may have some life stressors, but their constraints of their life stressors aren't so burdensome that they can't do the work of the parts of them that hijack them, that make their life stressors that much worse, if that makes sense. And uh, so are there situations where, where you would uh, not recommend to work in groups? Absolutely. So let's go back to that internal and external constraint example. If somebody is um, dealing with homelessness and, you know, they're in your practice. And for me, if I have to take my therapist hat off and put my social work hat on, I'm going to help them get some kind of housing first. Where IFS comes in is that I'm self-led in that, that my parts that could get worried about them or anxious that I have to get them shelter somewhere, that those parts of me give me space so I can trust their self-energy, whatever it is that they have, and that the two of us together can really connect. Um, so that's an individual example, but if that individual, I would probably not put them in group until I got them, you know, the very basics so they could land and exhale a little bit. Or if they, if they were, if their parts were so hijacking of them that they couldn't access enough self energy to be able to connect with other people in the group. And are there situations as well or problems when it would be recommended to work in groups rather than individually? Well, I yeah, I I just, you know, I think that most people benefit from group, if nothing else, from the opportunity to connect with other people who have similar parts. Yeah. <laughs> and and so I find that um, you know, in my experience, any basic presenting part that uh, the person was able to access without a tremendous amount of internal or external constraints was welcome into group and was equally served. Okay. I mean, that's, that's how I, I started my IFS groups at the outpatient behavioral health clinic was because they had an access issue. They couldn't, they didn't have enough individual therapists and they wanted somebody to literally quote champion outpatient group programming. So they let me do whatever I wanted. And that's where I created exclusively IFS groups and had over, in the four years I was there, I had over 200 referrals. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it, 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 you know, there were some folks that were not appropriate to be in group. Um, as I said, you know, the more constraints they had on board, the less access to self-energy to bring to group. Okay. But other than that, yeah, mm -hmm. we were able to really meet a tremendous need. One thing I've noticed about uh, group work 
and I guess this is maybe a more personal reflection, but is that I have parts that only show up in groups and, you know, some of their sometimes distancing parts or nervous parts or uh, parts that feel vulnerable in a way that they, that don't show up in individual therapy. And, and so it feels really valuable to have the opportunity, you know, to highlight the need for having more groups in the IFS world, because um, those parts just might not arrive in individual work. Yeah. That's a very good point. Yeah. Conversely, there's the shy parts that don't want to show up in group, right? So you agree with Bruce Tuckman's four stages model of group developmental sequence, forming, storming, norming, mm-hmm. performing, and the fifth stage, I believe, adjourning. Yes. And I actually, that's that I, I incorporated uh, a little bit of his work in one of my modules for the continuity program. Um, yeah, I was, I was raised, if you will, on Irvin Yalom uh, in graduate school, and he was informed by Tuckman. And the difference is it's not linear, not unlike the IFS model, though, you know, as trainers, we teach it in a linear fashion, and then we demo it in a often nonlinear fashion. The same can be said in groups where I think forming and norming is absolutely in the beginning, but depending on the group, you can also have a fair amount of storming in there too. Mm -hmm. And performing depends on the group. If it's a closed group that is time limited, they tend to perform a little faster than an ongoing ongoing group Mm -hmm. that's uh, not that either is not closed or is not time limited. They're feeling each other out more. I think that's a big piece of it. Um, and the performing and adjourning. Adjourning is built in, you know, as a social worker, we learned that you start saying goodbye on day one when you meet somebody. Again, you know, psychiatric social work, time-limited focus. In IFS, I don't hold it that way, but in a group, if it is a group that's time limited, we do have to talk about adjournment, um, whether they get through performing or not. And, you know, the hope is, is that performing will happen. Yeah. Yeah. So you also speak of group cohesion. Is it important really? And how do we facilitate group cohesion? To me, it feels like group cohesion is an organic process. It, it just kind of happens. Um, you can't force it. But if I'm sitting in my seat, regardless of what parts might be up in the room, right? You know, you got, it's not just parts like with an individual. You've got parts with each individual. And so if I'm able to sit in that space with as much self-energy on board and just be curious about it and then make an invitation after doing a little piece of work with one person by opening it up to the group to, to notice what's happening inside of them and would they like to speak for what they're noticing, that process of speaking for their parts is an organic way of creating group cohesion. That's been my experience. And also you differentiate between closed and open assessed groups. Can you say more about these differences? Yes. 
Um, open groups are, and I say this mostly for folks who are in agencies because they're not going to have typically the uh, luxury of having closed groups. So open groups are groups whereby membership um, is on a continual basis. And so membership changes with some regularity. And that may be because of the demand that uh, to get into a group. Um, it's my least favorite kind of group because that performing piece is harder and harder to access because there's, you know, you, you, you only can go so far in a deep dive with folks when you know that there's either a natural attrition rate where folks say, you know, I'm good now, I'm going to leave, or there's agency pressures to take in somebody new. Um, in private practice, I much prefer closed groups uh, and, and closed groups that are time limited. I do have one group that is a leftover that, that followed me when I left that last agency into full-time private practice. And they've become a closed group um, that's ongoing um, because they have a lot of external constraints in their world. And they're, I'm just making space for them. But any other groups I have are always time limited. I just think that people know where they stand if there's a time-limited option and it helps with the performing and the adjourning. Yeah. How much teaching of the model is required when you're centering a group uh, or with IFS as a foundation? Do you need to let people know about managers and firefighters? Or, um, what does that look like? That's a great question. Um, in my mind's eye and what I, what I do is I focus on the six F's and the very first day, um, it's about befriending. It's really about befriending. I don't worry about unblending on day one at all. I, I'm concerned about befriending. And so I bring everybody in and on day one, I, I believe that our intros of who we are is a way to befriend. And not just our own parts, but other people's parts. And so I, I try to use as much IFS language as possible. Like I'll start by saying we're going to take some time in our first group together and really just do some introductions. And I'm just going to ask that folks share just something that your system would like folks to know about you right now. So not unlike a befriending question, ask the part what it would like you to you know, something it would like to show you or tell you right now. I do that in, in group format and I start to kind of be the model of it. So, you know, I'll tell them a little something that's personal, but not private about myself. I'll also tell them something professional so that it gains their confidence. And then one by one, we go around and then we just begin for a couple of sessions talking about parts and talking about self. And the way I help folks know that they might be blended is I have these little, you know, eight and a half by 11 sheets on the floor with all of the eight C's. And so if somebody's feeling particularly activated as we're learning how to speak for and not from parts, I'll ask them to check inside and notice what's happening and then ask them to look at the eight C's that are on the floor, kind of in a north, south, east, and west position, and say, are you feeling that or something else? 
And so it helps them to see if they're blended or not. So, yeah, so that's how I, I kind of use some norms. And I start every single group with a meditation. So, so my group norms are around setting a stage to help people access as much self-energy as possible. And how does applying IFS to groups the way you do it differentiates from the IFS official trainings? Oh my, that's an interesting question. Well, truth be told, it was IFS trainings in part, uh, as well as Tracy McNabb's workshop in 2012 at the IFS conference that helped me get this idea of how to expand the use of the model in groups. And, you know, every training that I've ever been to and how we roll as a group norm and a training is to start with a meditation, right? Help settle our parts in for whatever is to come for that day. And I took that immediately as a, that's the start. That's the start to every single group. And, and then I think the, the other piece that's akin to a training is just talking about introducing language just parts language. I don't, I don't differentiate between managers and firefighters and exiles. I just say, you know, this part sounds like it's protecting something in you. Does that resonate with you? Yeah. Well, maybe just take a minute and ask it if it didn't do this job. What is it afraid would happen? Or what would happen to you? Or who would show up in you? And that'll, you know, lead to an exile. And I won't name it. I might name it as so... I'll use their language. So if they say, well, it'll, it'll bring up some shame or some guilt, and I'll just name that. Mm -hmm. So we all have tender, tender parts of yeah. ourselves. You know, that's not just to piggyback on that for a quick minute. That's not to say that um, if, if folks ask, you know, if I hear some analytical or intellectual parts coming up, um, I'll, I'll let them know. Um, I mean, folks, I, I, and I also start out by talking about Dick and how he came to use the model and in my experience, why I use it in group, which is because it's been the most gentle model, particularly with, you know, I'm a trauma therapist and it's been the most gentle model that I've seen used with folks. Fully agree. Do you ever use a, a demo in any of your group work? Like, like they do in the trainings, where if someone's really blended or if someone really needs um, that sort of work, is that a tool? So um, every group starts out like a mini demo, because what happens is if I use what I call option one, which is the material for, for both content and process of the group is based on the trailheads that come up for folks out of meditation. Um, I bring folks out of meditation and then I make an invitation to whomever would like to start us off to share what they noticed happening for them or any parts that came up for them during meditation. And I'll do about maybe a five minute piece with them, maybe five to seven, depending on the length of time. And while folks are witnessing that, just to see what happened for them in meditation. Who, who did they know to show up? And then once it feels like, 
they have a clearer understanding of their part than with their permission. I ask if I can open it up to the larger group and see what other folks were noticing while they were listening to you. And then the conversation begins. So I do a little mini demo in every single group. Um, in my consultation groups, if the group wants to do a piece of demo work with me, with the group witnessing, which I do, um, that's also very powerful. Yeah. So it's a depends outside of, but in therapy groups, yeah, basically every group gets a demo for at least five minutes. So how, how do you see people applying IFS to schools, prisons, corporate organizations, just to name a few? You know, I, um, wow, Annabelle, I did not see that question coming. That's an interesting question. How, you know, I, I, I know they're doing it. Um, I think that there's a, a whole swath of folks doing it in schools. I think, um, the folks that are using the model in schools, I think they're working with the teachers, but I would love to see a teacher support group where an IFS group could happen in this way because I think teachers need a tremendous amount of support. Absolutely. Prisons, um, I think, I think you, if somebody is highly skilled with IFS and has a background in group, that they could absolutely apply this with a few modifications because those folks are going to be have a lot of protector energy on board. Yeah. And what about the future, Sue? Um, what's coming for you in the future? Um, we have learned that you are writing a book. Do you want to tell us more about this project? Yes. This is a book that I started um, back in 2019 after, you know, a few years, um, having folks, um, reach out to me and say, do you have a manual? Do you have, you know, something that you've written up that I could use? I work in an agency, blah, blah, blah. And I didn't. And I just really felt like, gosh, you know, there, let, let me just say there's plenty of folks using IFS in groups in our community. I just happened to present it a few years in a row. And there's a, there's a part of me that, that feels like, you know, let's not forget that other people are doing this. But as yeah, my wife yeah. says, if you do something for four years, you become an expert in it. And so I think by default, uh, my name got kind of passed around in our community. And I started thinking, you know, I, I just felt like a responsibility to kind of write it up, um, put that English degree to, to good use. And, So some of it's about my journey into IFS and this, uh, the continuity program is really helpful in helping me unpack it. And I'm, I'm hoping by, you know, the end of next year to at least have it written before I get it edited. And, you know, um, I have a part that likes to under promise and overperform. So, you know, I say a couple of years, so we'll see, but It's really about this process. It's, it's a little bit about my journey um, in, in part because um, I want to give people hope, when, especially folks who work in the medical model, that there's a different way to do this and don't lose hope. Yeah. So, um, and in part because it just feels like people want something. They want something different. They don't want manualized treatment. No. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. 
Sue, such a joy to talk to you and thank you so much for your time and for sitting with us and focus on our group lives or relational lives. It was a joy to be here with you and Tisha and um, we hope we can keep meeting and sharing this model, our work and our lives and your coming book as well. Yeah, that would be great. Thank you. I'd love that. Thank you. Thank you so much. This has been a wonderful, informative conversation. It's really great to meet you. It's lovely to meet you too, Tisha. Thank you. You guys stay healthy and well out there. You too. Thank you. Yeah.